In November of 1775, during the siege of Boston, the American patriots found themselves in a stalemate against the British. British and loyalist forces controlled Boston at this point, but had no access to the city from the land and could only wait for reinforcement and supplies from the sea. Both sides were running desperately low on weapons, food, and firewood to survive the cold Massachusetts winter. Ships were on their way from Britain with reinforcements that would allow the Redcoats not only to take Boston for good, but to push inland, jeopardizing the whole war for independence. 25-year-old bookseller Henry Knox convinced General George Washington to allow him to assemble a team for a seemingly impossible mission. Knox led a team of men and oxen to Fort Ticonderoga and back, a roughly 700-mile round trip, bringing over 60 tons of artillery across mountainous terrain through blizzards and broken ice. With the arrival of Knox's noble train of artillery, American forces were greatly strengthened. Seeing this, the British evacuated and never retook the city. The ultimate outcome of the siege of Boston depended upon which side was able to be strengthened. Which side had the power and wisdom to break the stalemate and win the victory? It was Henry Knox's courageous, sacrificial, and glorious mission that provided the weapons and the morale necessary to establish the young American army and strength for the war at hand. We love stories like this, don't we? And stories like this are glorious because they reflect the story that God is telling and as we come to the scripture this morning, we will see that the power and wisdom that we need to be strengthened and established in the spiritual warfare to which we've been called has been provided to us freely and completely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's stand together now as we turn to God's word in Romans chapter 16 to honor the reading of the word of God. Our text this morning is Romans 16, uh, verses six, uh, 25 through 27. Romans 16, 25 through 27. And if you want to get there quickly, it's on page 951 in the black hardback Bible in front of you there. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one with you as a gift to us. We have plenty. It is for you. This is the last sentence of the book of Romans. It's the closing doxology that brings into remembrance everything the Apostle Paul has previously stated, and it draws it all to a final worshipful amen. So hear the word of the God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the revelation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations 
according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, you are the only wise God. Teach us and strengthen us and incline our hearts to praise the greatness of your glory revealed in the gospel of your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Established in Glory, God's Glory in the Gospel as the Source of the Church's Strength. As I mentioned before the reading of our text just a moment ago, this passage is a doxology from the Greek doxa, meaning glory, and logos, meaning word. So a doxology is a word of glory or a word of worship. Doxology is the rightful end of theology. The more we know God, the more we are moved to worship. The more we behold glory, the more we give glory. And there are two doxologies in the book of Romans. And they mark the end of each major section of the letter. The first is at the end of chapter 11. After explaining with great detail and with passion the wisdom and justice of God and the salvation of sinners by grace through faith in Christ, the Apostle Paul then overflows, as it were, in worship, saying, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, the second doxology is the text before us today, which comes at the end of the second half of the letter, which is focused on how Christians should live together in light of what God has done in Christ. To put it another way, the first doxology follows gospel indicatives, what God has done. The second doxology follows gospel imperatives, how then should we live? And this second section of imperatives, in this list, in these few chapters, from chapters 12 to the end of the book, Christians have been called to some pretty difficult tasks. We've been called to give our whole selves as living sacrifices to God to humbly steward our various gifts, to serve one another, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer, to contribute to the needs of the saints, and to seek to show hospitality, to live in harmony with one another, not to take vengeance when wronged, to submit to authority, to put away drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, to welcome a weaker brother, setting aside your liberties for their sake, 
and to be on guard against false teaching and divisiveness. In the face of such a list of commands to which we are called to obey, and this is just a sample, you can easily be tempted to give in to an overwhelming feeling of weakness. You can be tempted to believe that the life of obedience that the Scripture calls you to is not for you. That that kind of obedience is only for the elite. Or that kind of obedience is for the radicals. Not ordinary, everyday Christians like you. But church, the Word of God says otherwise. What Paul intends you to take away from this closing doxology is this. It is God's glory to save you. It is God's glory to save you. From beginning to the end. And and you should walk away from reading the book of Romans, worshiping, glorifying God for his power and wisdom to bring about the obedience of faith. Our God is not a cruel master who commands that we build bricks while withholding straw. No, it is the glory of our God to provide what we need to fulfill his purpose. Your weakness, church, is not at odds with Christ's glory. Rather, your weakness provides an opportunity for God to display his power, and he is able. And not simply able. If he was only able to meet our need, that wouldn't quite be good news. The good news is that he's also willing. He's willing and determined to meet your every need in Christ. Do you believe that? This is what should compel us to give the Lord our lives when we've beheld this glory. Here's another Pauline doxology that works the same way from Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. In Christ Jesus, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that it is God's glory to provide your every need? And where does he, where does he pull these supplies from? The riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, which is bottomless. It is God's glory to save you and to supply your need. So let's go back now to the context of Romans 16 in our text this morning. What is the need that God will supply in this text? The need is strength. It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. The word translated strengthen here is sterizo, which means to establish or to make firm to turn resolutely in a certain direction. And isn't that what we need? When faced with the greatness of our calling as followers of Christ, when faced with the opposition and suffering, 
when faced with doubts and fears, we need the strengthening power of God Almighty. He is able to pick you up from your fears and failures and to establish you in the way that you should go with resolve. Do you fear that you will fall away from the path of following Christ? He is able to strengthen you. He is able to establish you. David spoke of this in Psalm 51, 12, saying, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me, sterizo me in the Greek translation, with a willing spirit. God is able to do just that. Moving on. Paul gives three according to clauses that provide both the assurance of God's power to strengthen you and the means of receiving that divine strength. These clauses provide both the assurance of God's power to strengthen you and the means of receiving that divine strength. And these clauses are ordered in such a way that each clause builds upon the foundation of the next clause. It's, it's like a, a, a pyramid, a gospel pyramid, and we're starting from the top and working our way down towards the foundation. Or it's like following a stream against the current until you reach its source. The three sources of assurance and strength that Paul appeals to in this passage can be summarized like this. One, gospel preaching. Two, the Christ-centered scriptures. And three, the eternal decree of God. Gospel preaching, the Christ-centered scriptures, and the eternal decree of God. So the first place you should look for divine strengthening, church, is in the preaching of the gospel. Place yourself beneath the preaching of Christ crucified for sinners. When you are regularly reminded of God's grace in Christ, you can't help but to be strengthened. When week after week, you are reminded of how God pulled you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon a rock, you begin to actually believe it. When you are reminded that all of your sin was placed upon Jesus, for which he died, making full atonement, and that you have received his perfect righteousness by faith, and that you have been once and forever justified, that creates a kind of resolve to live for God's glory that can come from no other source than from God himself. God is able to strengthen you according to the preaching of the gospel. If you are weak in your faith and are not weakly sitting under the preaching of the gospel, you're cutting yourself off from the greatest source of divine strength. It's there for the taking. Will you have it? Secondly, God is able to strengthen you according to the Christ-centered scriptures. Paul is saying that 
his gospel, notice he says my gospel, but his gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, he's saying that those things are consistent with the message of the prophets. In other words, the New Testament is consistent with the message of the Old Testament. Jesus provides the light that reveals with clarity what was concealed in types and shadows in the Old Testament. Paul speaks of the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. What is this this mystery that he's referring to? The Old Testament saints who had received God's word through the prophets... Like they knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew that the Messiah was coming, but they weren't quite sure. The best of them weren't quite sure how it was all going to unfold exactly. We actually see this in the New Testament when it says that the the prophets wrote on our behalf. uh, They didn't know the things that they were speaking of. They saw dimly through a veil. But on this side of the incarnation, we see clearly in Jesus Christ which is what Paul's alluding to in verse 26 when he speaks of the revelation of the mystery being disclosed. The word translated disclosed is phanerao. Phanerao is where we get our word epiphany. Epiphany. So epiphany. What is an epiphany? It's an enlightenment. So this word is disclosed is the image of enlightenment. Jesus shines a light upon the text of the Old Testament. And now those texts are made useful by the Holy Spirit to all nations. So now because of Jesus, the prophets of Israel are used by God to give the message of salvation in Christ to every nation. And at this point, it's especially helpful to point out that the you being uh, strengthened in verse 25 is plural. It's a plural you. It's the y'all. Of course, God helps us as individuals when we seek it in faith. But primarily, God's ministry of grace is covenantal. It's corporate. He strengthens his church. And, and we certainly see that in the Old Testament. We see it in the numerous battles when God's people are outnumbered by their enemies. And when they together seek the Lord, he fights on their behalf, giving them victory and establishing them in the promised land. In the Old Testament, we also read Psalms like Psalm 28, where it says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. So the scriptures of the Old and New Testament give both assurance of God's power to strengthen his people, and they are also the means of receiving his strength. So the question, are you reading the scriptures? Are you studying the Bible carefully with Jesus at the center of it all, which is key? I wonder if you could sketch the overarching narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, showing how it all finds its unity in Christ. I'm not asking you to explain every single king of Israel. (laughs) I don't think I could do that. I actually know I couldn't do that. But I'm asking you, do you know the overarching narrative? 
of redemptive history? And do you see how Jesus is at the center of it all? Maybe, maybe you can't. Maybe you're really familiar with Scripture and you, and you get it. Maybe the more pressing question for you is, do you believe that it is sufficient to establish you firmly in life? Is this, are the scriptures sufficient to sterizo you? Or do you feel like you need more? Do you need something else? Do you feel like you need psychology or sociology or otherworldly wisdom to be complete for everyday life? Like there's some things that the Bible can equip me for, and then there's some things I need to go to be, to be equipped for the other things that I face in life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen to this. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is telling us that the Word of God is sufficient to equip you for every good work that you face. God is able to strengthen you according to the scriptures. Now finally, we reach the fountainhead, the eternal decree of God. Remember what I said earlier, that each according to clause in this passage is built upon the foundation of the next. So the logical flow in this doxology is, is this. You can be assured that God is able to strengthen you because of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is consistent with God's previous revelation in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. And ultimately, the message of Scripture is consistent with God's eternal will. Do you see how that flows, how we, we follow that stream backwards until we reach the spring head? Matthew Henry commenting on this verse said, the oaths and covenants in the written word are but the copy of the oath and covenant which were between the Father and the Son from eternity. Those the extracts, these the original. What Henry is referring to here is what theologians call the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis. This is the eternal agreement between God the Father and God the Son concerning the redemption of mankind. The point here is that the completion of redemption to bring about the obedience of faith, as it says in our passage, is according to the command, the eternal command of God. In other words, your redemption and your obedience of faith, church, is the result of God's desire to glorify himself and his son. And it is his greatest goal. This is his eternal goal. And he will not fail in its accomplishment. Like if God sets out to do something and says, this is going to be my greatest goal, do you think he's going to fail in that? Hear these words from the Lord in Isaiah 46. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, 
For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The whole purpose of God's plan of salvation is to redeem the rebellious sons and daughters of Adam, turning them from their sin and idolatry and to establish them in freedom and righteousness through the obedience of his son and their faith in him. This purpose was present, was present in God's covenant with Abraham when God promised, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham believed the promise and his faith was counted as righteousness. The family of Abraham multiplied like sand on the seashore, persevering through sin, judgment, and suffering, until the, the coming of the true offspring of Abraham, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. And having received his coronation with a crown of thorns and an empty grave, with all authority in heaven and on earth given to him, Jesus, the King of Israel, commissioned his apostles to go to the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that he had commanded to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. And church, here we are, 2,000 years later, by sheer mercy and grace. God has ordered every second of history in such a fashion that you would be saved. It's crazy, right? God has ordained every second of history in such a fashion that you would be saved because he loves you, because he has loved you from before the foundation of the earth. And it is his glory to save you. Having done all this, he will not drop the ball now. What he began in you, he will bring to completion what then shall we say to these things? To the only wise God, be glory forevermore. Or, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The only appropriate word in response to what God has done for us in Christ is glory. And glory to God alone. He alone is wise. Not only has he orchestrated every millisecond of history according to his perfect plan, and that is mind-blowing enough, but he has reconciled in Christ what seemed to be completely irreconcilable. In the gospel of Jesus, justice and mercy meet in perfect harmony. 
Sinners are forgiven and justified, while God's righteous wrath is justly poured out and is satisfied. God has brought together into one body people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. No longer standing is the dividing wall of Jew or Gentile or white and black, but we've been reconciled to one another and our brothers and sisters by adoption. Oh, the wisdom of God. And all of these opposing realities are now reconciled because Christ has reconciled us to God. The greatest impossibility has been overcome by the infinite wisdom of our God. And as Paul said earlier in his letter, Romans 5, verse 10, he said, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Do you get it? So church, why would you doubt? Why would you look at a list of commands and feel insufficient to obey in faith when you have an almighty heavenly father and it is his glory to bring this to bear in your life? Why would you fear that God would call you to himself while you were his enemy only to then abandon you after making you his child? What evidence do you have that the Lord is an incapable father? On the contrary, all the evidence in the preaching of the gospel, in the pages of scripture, and in the very will of God demonstrates with astonishing clarity that he is able to strengthen you and to establish you fully in the obedience of faith. He is able and he is willing and he has given you all you need in Christ Jesus. Will you receive his help? Will you humble yourself and open the empty hands of faith and be filled with all his fullness? It is God's glory to save you. Come to him and worship him today. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, there is nothing for us to say in light of your wisdom, in light of your power, in light of your goodness and grace that you have lavished upon us in your son, Jesus, other than glory. May this resonate in the hearts of your people. May we be so well acquainted with your power and your wisdom in the preached word and in the scriptures, and in your very character and decree, that we would be a people of resolve, a people who have been set resolutely in the way that we should go by your almighty hand. Lord, you are able to strengthen your people, and you are wise to bring out its accomplishment.
And you are willing to display the glory of your name through your son, Jesus. And so we ask you to manifest it among us now. We pray it in his name. Amen.